Good morning. Good morning, church. Great to be here this morning. Good to see you all. I hope you all are having a wonderful morning and have come ready to engage with God, ready to fellowship with His people. It is a privilege to stand here this morning as your pastor. It is a humbling task to stand before you as your pastor. And I have prayed long and hard for this day. I know you have as well. And so I think the only right response at this point is to turn to God's Word. I have nothing of substance in myself to say, but God has much to say. So I would invite you to turn with me to the New Testament Gospel of Mark. The New Testament Gospel of Mark. And for the next little while, as a church, we will study through the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according to to Mark. But before we get into the, to the text, I want to ask this question. What is a biography? What is a biography? And what is it for? You see, I am a big fan of biographies. Uh, several of you have had the joy of moving some of my particularly heavy boxes as we have transitioned marked books. <coughs> And there are numerous boxes of books in my life, and I'm okay with that. But most people who have to move them tend to not be okay with it. But I am firmly committed to reading, and one of the things you will often find me reading are biographies. And biographies are just stories of someone's life. Stories of someone's life, or a group of people, their lives. And the biographer, or the writer, is attempting to introduce us to this person. They want us to know who this person is or who this group of people are. And typically with the modern biographies, they start way before the person was even born. So for instance, I have a personal goal of reading a biography, at least one on every president of the United States. I want to read at least one biography on each president. I'm about 12 presidents in. And currently, I'm reading a biography on Lyndon Baines Johnson. Now, some of you may have opinions on him. I have my own opinions on him. But nonetheless, I'm reading a book about LBJ. And this particular writer started three generations before LBJ was ever born. He started with LBJ's grandparents, great-grandparents, and how they lived and how they raised their children in this place called the Hill Country of Texas. All of that to prepare the reader to, in, to encounter LBJ and some of the peculiarities, we'll say, of his personality. But biographies are meant to introduce us to someone, and so they look at their childhood, the influence of their parents. They look at their teen years and their adulthood. They look at what kind of schools they attended or what kind of work they did. Biographies explore their goals and their dreams, their successes, and if it's a good biography, their failures. You see, modern biographies analyze and synthesize a person in order to present this holistic picture. But throughout history, the method of biography or telling about someone has changed. That's not always how writers tend to tell about the person they're writing about. Another form of biography is called autobiography, which is the story that I would tell about my own life. If I were to write a book about my own life, I would call it an autobiography. 
Now, you see, a lot of us use and utilize autobiography oftentimes every single day, especially if you're younger and you have a Facebook account or a Twitter account or an Instagram account. We are telling the story of our lives, but we are not attempting to present a holistic picture of our successes and our failures. You see, on social media, we want to tell the story of how successful and beautiful and desirable our life is. And so it tends to be one-sided when we're telling the story. And so you see, it's good when someone else tells the story and tells it honestly because they can talk about not only our strengths, but also our weaknesses. You see, biography at its heart is a story. It's the story of someone's life. And we as people love stories. You might love stories about particular things, maybe sports or hunting or this, that, and the other. But we love stories. Our lives are stories. They're unfolding stories. When you think about the good old days, just me saying that phrase probably triggered in your mind some particular period of time in your life or an experience or a group of people. We think about our lives in stories. You see, when we get to the New Testament, we find four stories about Jesus. Four ancient biographies about Jesus. These are not biographies in the modern sense. They don't start several generations before Jesus and develop his, his, uh, his workplace and his schooling and this, that, and the other. Some of them do. Mark, or Matthew and Luke, in particular, start with his genealogy, but it's just a chapter or two. There's not this substance of this is where Jesus came from, other than the fact that the writers say Jesus came from where? God. He is the Son of God. Now that sets Jesus' biography apart from any other biography you will ever pick up. No one else, spoiler alert, no one else is the Son of God. It's just Jesus. And so the Gospels are not biographies in the modern sense. They don't provide this full historical account of his background, birth, life, death, and all of the things that go into making Jesus who he was. You see, ancient biographies, which is what the four Gospels fall into, were written to preserve the memory of a person, to celebrate the virtues of a person, to celebrate the teachings of a person. And so Mark, in particular, if you'll note, offers no account of Jesus' birth. Mark offers no account of Jesus' teen years. Because of the fast pace of Mark's story, some people have called Mark's gospel the go gospel. You see, in Matthew, we start with, he says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke starts with the birth account. Mark says, by the way, Jesus is here, here's what he's doing. When we encounter Jesus in Mark's gospel, he is already an adult. He's already on a mission with God. And so although Mark never says, this was written by me, that is Mark, the gospel never says that. There's never any authorship claimed. There's good reason to think, as we examine the whole of Scripture in history, that John Mark, the disciple of Peter, wrote this Gospel. It was most likely written towards the end of Peter's life, and John Mark 
had lived with Peter and traveled with Peter and had ministered with Peter and had heard Peter tell over and over and over again his experiences with Jesus. Now, can you imagine sitting at the feet of someone who had actually walked with Jesus, who had seen Jesus perform countless miracles, who had heard him talk, who had seen him, who had sat with him by the Sea of Galilee when the sun was setting and the fish were roasting over the fire and were just having conversations. Can you imagine spending time with that person and hearing the stories told from a first-person point of view? I imagine that John Mark was privy to some incredible experiences and stories. And so what the gospel of Mark is, historically, is Mark synthesizing or putting together Peter's encounter with Jesus. And so there's good reason, historically, to think that John Mark wrote it. He wrote it somewhere around A.D. 55 to 60. Now, why does that matter to you? Well, in one sense, it doesn't, but in another sense, what it means is Mark is most likely the earliest book in the New Testament. The first thing that the church of the New Testament celebrated and read from was the gospel of Mark, the first story of Jesus. And so as we begin this morning, we stand in a long line of church history that churches have taken up this story year after year after year after year for 2,000 years to celebrate and to know and to experience Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so I have a habit of standing when we read the Word of God to proclaim its authority in our lives. And this morning we're only going to read one verse, but I still want us to stand to proclaim the authority of God's Word in our life. And so I will invite you to stand. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is the single and sole authority in our lives. You intend for us to live by its teaching to find our identity in its pages. You intend, Lord, to encounter us through these pages. No other book is like this book. No other book, Lord, is like this book. So, God, as we as a church body set out to understand the story of your Son as told by John Mark, Lord, Holy Spirit, open it to our hearts and our eyes and our minds. Teach us, Lord, the truths contained within its pages. Lord, teach us to know you more, to know ourselves better, and Lord, call us to follow after you. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So this sermon is going to be a little bit different than most of them because it's an introduction to the book. Next week we'll start in on the actual story, but I want to preface it by getting us ready for what we will encounter in the Gospel of Mark. And again, if you go back and read any good biography, the biography opens with something called a preface. Typically, it picks up 30 or 40 years into a person's life when there's a really good nugget, a really good experience in the story. And it's meant to whet your appetite to, okay, I really want to read this now. And so, this is my feeble attempt to whet your appetite for the Gospel of Mark. 
But more than that, I want to give you kind of an overview of the gospel. I want to give you a preview of some of the major themes that Mark is going to bring out about Jesus, about his disciples, about his church. And so if we were going to synthesize the main idea of Mark's gospel, here's what we would say. Mark's ultimate goal is to proclaim the good news of salvation accomplished by God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Mark's ultimate goal is to proclaim the good news of salvation accomplished by God through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And to call people to faith and a life of faith. To call people to faith and a life of faith. Sometimes we can stop at the faith. We can call people to faith without calling people to a life of faith or a lifestyle of faith. Or another way to say it, faithful living. As you get to know me and as I hang up my stuff in my office, you'll come see. You'll see one plaque or wooden piece of wood that says, uh, be intentional, be consistent. Be intentional, be consistent. And so as you hear me preach and as you kind of learn my personality, you will hear those words over and over and over again. Intentionality, consistency. And I give you permission off the bat. If you find within me passiveness or inconsistency, you better call it out. Because that will get on my own nerves. But being intentional with the gospel, outwardly towards the lost but also inwardly in my own life, in the life of my family, to live consistently to the glory of God. And so Mark's goal is to proclaim the gospel of God that's accomplished through Jesus and to call people to faith and a life of faith. One of Mark's primary emphases is Christian discipleship. Now, if you've been around the church a long time, then you've no doubt heard that word, discipleship. Discipleship also means just learning and living Jesus Christ. Discipleship has taken on its own definition in our modern days. And if you go into a a modern Christian bookstore, you'll find a whole section on discipleship with all the numerous books that you could find on what discipleship is. But quite simply, at its base level, discipleship is learning and living Jesus And we could add on to that definition, learning and living Jesus intentionally and consistently. So for the next year or year and a half, as we study through Mark's gospel, we will, as a faith family, study Christian discipleship. We will apply Christian discipleship in the life of Theresa Baptist Church. And we will do it together. One of the things that struck me as I've studied the Bible over the years is that the Bible is not an individualistic book. Most of what's written to the people of God is written in the plural sense, which means it's not you by yourself, it's you all. And so the commands to be holy before God are commands to you all. 
Commands to love one another is to you all. Commands to walk in holiness is to you all. Commands to work out your salvation or to exercise your salvation is to you all. Commands like Hebrews 3 verse 12, guard, one, guard your hearts, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Guard one another. That's a command to you all. All those things could fall under the category of Christian discipleship. And so we need to begin by asking the question, well, what in fact is discipleship? What is Christian discipleship? The word can mean or imply a learner or a student. For those of you who are about to return to school... You are a disciple, you are a learner, you are a student. Teachers, I know today is a day of mixed emotions. But for you to think about tomorrow when students come into your classroom, all those students coming into your classroom are learners of something. You are giving them something to learn and hopefully that their lives will be shaped by Our school system intends to produce children that are developed and competent citizens when they graduate so that they can live on their own and be productive citizens. But disciple means learner, so one who learns a task or a trade or, in the Christian sense, learns a way of life. As Mark will help us see, disciples of Jesus are learners of Jesus' way of living. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about it like that? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It actually means to live life the way that Jesus lived his life. Not in the sense that we can do miracles and perform all those great things that he did, heal the sick and raise the dead, because we are not the Son of God. We are not sons of God in the same way he is. We are not divine. But we can live the same life that Jesus lived when it comes to holiness and love of God and God's mission in the world, which is calling sinners to repent and find salvation. But Mark's gospel is not only the story about Jesus, it's the story about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples. You see, Mark is writing in the context of Jesus' disciples. He's writing as one of Jesus' disciples. He's writing for the guidance of those who would come after him. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Risa Baptist Church. Think about it like that. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to produce this book for the church of Jesus Christ. And Theresa Baptist Church is a church of Jesus Christ. And so this is a gift of the Holy Spirit to this body of believers. And it's written that we might know Jesus and we might have guidance in following Jesus. And so we might have clarity in what that actually means. You see, when we get to heaven and we stand before God and he says, how did you go about your life? He's not going to accept, well, I, I went about it the best way I thought. He will accept the work and life of His Son and Jesus Christ alone. So discipleship, according to Mark, is living life after Jesus and carrying on the work that Jesus carried on. You see, the mission of God, which is His glory in the world through the salvation of sinners... The mission of God goes forward not primarily through mission organizations. You see, at Southern Baptist Convention, we have two mission organizations, the International Mission Board 
and the North American Mission Board, both of which are fantastic. I have friends in both, and I believe in both and support both, but that's not the primary mission agency of God. Do you know who's going to be the primary mission agency of God? You and I, the local church. God intends for there to be gatherings like this everywhere in the world so that Christians come together to celebrate God and to call the lost to salvation. And so one of the ways that Mark emphasizes discipleship that we will see is by introducing us to the disciples, the twelve disciples. He's going to emphasize the disciples and set them in front of us as examples. And sometimes they are really good examples of what it means to follow Jesus. Listen to these things that we will encounter as we move through the gospel. We will see that their wholehearted commitment to leave everything and follow Jesus is a great example. We'll see that they have privileged insight into the kingdom of God. They have privileged insight into the kingdom of God. We will see that they share in Jesus' work of proclaiming the gospel and the deliverance of the kingdom of God. And when we see them doing this, we root for them and we say, yes, that's, that's the kind of disciple that I want to be. I want to wholeheartedly commit to Jesus. I want to have insight and secret insight into the kingdom of God so that I might understand and know God more and love God more. I want to engage with Jesus in proclaiming the gospel around the world. But you see, Mark also holds the disciples up as negative models of discipleship. They succeed, and sometimes their successes are really big. Like the time Jesus, I mean, Peter walks on the water. That's a big success. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if y'all, y'all probably thought about that a lot, and maybe it's lost its wow factor, but he walked on the water physically put his foot down, and the water held him. That's pretty big. But then he sank. They have some pretty spectacular successes and some even more spectacular failures. We see that they have fear and faithlessness over and over again. We see that they have selfish ambition to be the greatest and to sit closest to Jesus. We see that they have spiritual failure. That is, they should understand, and yet they just don't. We will see them desert Jesus. We will see that despite the declaration of chapter 4, verse 11, that they have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, that despite that, they prove repeatedly and increasingly, as the story of Mark unfolds, unable to grasp even the basic principles of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, The secrets have been given to you. You have them. And yet, because of their fear and faithlessness, they prove over and over again that they do not have them. And so, part of what Mark uses as he's writing is he uses something called irony. Something called irony. Mark was a real writer. He used something called irony. And so, one of the ways we see irony is that what Jesus says about the outsiders that is, non-Christians, becomes actually true of his disciples. You hear, and yet you do not hear. You see, and yet you do not see. Can you imagine if you had had an experience like Peter where he actually walked on the water? 
I'm the kind of person to think, well, if that happened to me, I would actually never doubt ever again. Like, I wouldn't need a, a reboost in my faith. I would just always have that. Remember that time you walked on the water? Yeah, I'm good. I would like to think that about myself. But I also know myself too well to think that that would actually work. Because just like Peter, I might have a spiritual success and then immediately fail. And so what Jesus is saying about non-Christians is actually becoming true of the disciples. Not that they're not actually Christians. But his point is that your faith is never going to get you to the end. Your efforts are not going to make you a Christian. Your desire to be a Christian good enough is never going to get you there. Mark's point is that it's all about the glory and the work of God in Jesus Christ. Mark's point is that if our faith is going to succeed, it's going to be because the Holy Spirit empowers us to succeed. And so the main focus of the second half of Mark's gospel becomes the disciples' need for almost a re-education in the things of God. The disciples need a re-education in the things of God, which is ironic because the disciples are Jews. And what, what, what are the Jews known for? The things of God. They had, they had the only scriptures that existed in that point, which is the Old Testament, which is primarily the, the bulk of our Bible. And the Jews were known for knowing the scriptures well, for living unto God's glory, for ritualistic religion. And so for Mark to make the assertion that, hey, all you religious people need a, a, another education in religion is quite startling. He's saying, you act like you know God. You go about your life like you know God. But you do not know God. And so Mark's gospel is going to confront us with two questions. And here are the two questions. Number one, who is God? Who is God? Now, I've heard it told that uh, the great coach, football coach Vince Lombardi would start his football season every year. I think he coached the Green Bay Packers. I'm not a sports guy, so if I'm wrong, forgive me. But he would start the new season off every year with his professional football team by holding up a ball and saying, anybody know? This is a football. Now, you would think if you're a professional football player, you don't need to be reminded of what a football is. Right? You should know. If you have made it to the National Football League, you should know what a football is. But his point was not that they might have forgotten. The point was to bring them back to the basics. Let's remember what this game is about. Because the basics for Vince Lombardi in football is where the game was won. And Mark is going to bring this question to, our, to the forefront of our lives. Who is God? Some of us, unfortunately, have gotten far too comfortable with that question. Who is God? And Mark intends to help us see with clarity who God is. And the second question is this, which we're often comfortable with. Who am I? Who is God and who am I? You see, Mark intends to help us see the truth about ourselves, about our sin, our pride, about our total need for Jesus Christ. Mark uses the word disciple some 40 times in his gospel. 
And the two questions that we've just mentioned are entirely connected to discipleship. If we're going to be successful in our discipleship, we've got to have those two questions down. Who is God and who am I? Because if I believe that God can't get it all done, then I believe I've got to help Him. Now that sounds odd and uncomfortable to say, God can't get it all done. But sometimes we actually live like that. We live like that by trying to wrestle our lives into the patterns that we think they should be following. To handle situations the way that we think they should be unfolding. Or we get mad at God when things don't unfold the way we think that they should. So, I want to ask this question as I bring this to a close. What, actually, what is it to disciple someone? We use the word a lot. There are all kinds of books. What actually is it to disciple? What does it look like? Is it a series of classes? Is it teachings? Is it instructional seminars? Is it that plus something? Here's a helpful description of real day-to-day discipleship. <clears throat> Discipling is a kind of fashion modeling. Everybody listening now? It's a kind of fashion modeling, not to take pictures of or show off a particular line of clothing. It's the demonstrating of a fashion or a way of living for others to follow. You are demonstrating for other people how to live as a Christian. You are inviting people to know Jesus by how you live. Discipling is inviting someone to imitate you. Making your life in Christ, or making your trust in Christ, rather, an example to be followed. Now, here's where it gets, here's where it gets in your business. It requires you to be willing to be watched. And then folding people into your life so that they actually do watch. Let me say that again. Discipling is inviting someone to imitate you, making your life and your trust in Christ an example to be followed, and then making sure someone's in your life so that they watch. We disciple through our strengths and through our weaknesses, through our parenting, our marriage, our work, our leisure times, the way we spend our money, the way that we engage with one another inside the church. You see, this starts with the spiritual leadership of the church. Discipling starts at the spiritual leadership of the church. And so I'm giving you permission right from day one to hold me accountable to this. I, under the authority of God's word, am to be the lead disciple maker in the context of the local church. Now, I can't disciple everyone. And so I will focus on a few. And those few will focus on a few and a few and a few. And so on it goes. But... Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the Lord expects each of us to disciple one another, to call the lost to faith in Christ, to urge one another on to maturity in Christ. One pastor said, Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship in today's church is slim. And here's what Mark will help us with that. Here's how Mark helps us with that. He holds up the disciples... And says, this is what actual, real-life following of Jesus looks like. Sometimes we succeed. Oftentimes we fail. But the Christian life is assured because it's not dependent on me. Now, Jesus expects me to obey and to walk faithfully. 
But my hope in salvation is not because I've tried hard enough. It's because Jesus Christ succeeded perfectly. And so, as we prepare next week to enter into the Gospel of Mark, I want to offer just a few thoughts and then I'm going to pray. Our engagement with the Bible, brothers and sisters, is never meant to be passive or casual. When you sit down with your Bible, whether it's in the morning or whether it's on Sunday mornings in service or in a Sunday school class or over a cup of coffee, our engagement with the Bible is never meant to be passive. It's never meant to be casual. God intends to meet with us when we open His book. Have you ever wanted to experience God to encounter Him face to face? Is that how you approach opening this sacred book? That you are sitting down with the God who created everything. And so here are some things that we should be doing as a church as we move into our study of Mark. Number one, we should expect to encounter God in His Word. That may seem overly redundant, but I want to say it. We should expect to encounter God in His Word. We should expect to be challenged. We should expect to have our sin identified and exposed. Now, that's uncomfortable. No one likes that. And yet the cross is better than sin. Grace is greater than sin, the old hymn says. We should expect to be called to repentance over our sin. We should expect to find a loving Savior King who is kind and merciful and gracious. We should expect to hear the call of King Jesus to not only follow Him, but to call others to follow Him. We should expect to be humbled. And finally, we should be excited and open to what God will do in our lives through His Word, both as a church and as individuals. We should be excited and open to what God is going to do. Brothers and sisters, Mark is a fantastic book because God wrote it, and it's about God. And in its pages, we will meet with God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful, eternally grateful, that you have chosen to meet with us in your word. And I pray now, God, that our response is right. That we will respond properly in worship, in humility, in excitement. Lord, teach us to pray and to anticipate what you will do in and through your word in our lives and in our lives as a local church. God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. As friend comes to lead us, I'll be on the front pew if you'd like to pray. The altar is open. I invite you to stand.
Lord, make that hymn, the song, and the banner of our life. Wherever you lead, God, we will go. If it's around the world with the gospel, Lord, reveal that to us and give us the desire and the motivation and the excitement to go. If it's to our neighbor, if it's to our family, Lord, if it's to confront sin in our own life, wherever you lead, God, cause us to go and cause us to go for your glory. It's in the holy name of your precious Son we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.